Welcome to Inner Challenge. I'm MJ Murray Vachon, a licensed clinical social worker with more than 44,000 hours of therapy sessions and 30 years of teaching mental wellness. Join me as I have an unscripted conversation with guests just like you as we strive to take the mystery out of mental wellness. Welcome to the podcast. Here we are in February, and you know what that means, Valentine's Day. What are people talking about this Valentine's Day? Nope, not flowers and those little candy hearts with messages. What people are talking about is America's newest couple, Taylor and Travis. Will she show up at the Super Bowl? Will he be able to keep his head in the game so his Chiefs can win back-to-back titles? And most importantly, will their love last? Hey, I'm rooting for them. But as a therapist, I always root for love. And I root for relationships to grow and be healthy. By now, everyone has heard of the important role that relationships play in cultivating mental wellness. Certainly, marriage and committed partnerships are some of the most significant relationships in our lives. So I thought it would be great to invite Ellie Winia, a licensed clinical social worker who is an expert when it comes to helping couples grow and create healthy relationships. Ellie, let me welcome you to the podcast today. I want to begin by asking you to share with our listeners how did you become interested in specializing in couples work and briefly explain to our audience the work that you do. Hi, everyone. And hi, MJ. It's so so fun to have you on the podcast. (laughs) It's so fantastic. I really appreciate being here with you. We always have great conversations. So I'm sure this is going to be a lot of fun for both of us, too. How I got into couples therapy is through the same vehicle that is the reason why I'm a therapist. I came from a family of origin that I wanted to understand. And then when I became married, I really needed to understand how to be married well and how to be in couplehood. So I began looking into what might be some good models that would be out there that maybe would really suit well with my personality. And I was very lucky to find Harville Hendricks and Imago Therapy. And through that was able to build a practice in couples work, which has definitely influenced my ability to do couplehood differently, as well as help a lot of other couples. I I love what you said, because Embedded in it is this assumption that coupling, marriage, partnerships is something we learn. Mm -hmm. And for so many people, I think they feel like it's this innate knowing versus something that we have to go out and learn about. One of my other areas of expertise is sexuality. I think none of us get a handbook for either thing. We might take courses like premarital workshops that were uh, necessary for me to even get married in the church that my husband and I got married in. But most of us don't have that And then along with that, there were no teachings about how to be emotionally intimate as well as how to be sexually intimate. That's a very important piece of the work that I do. I'm really encouraging intimacy on both of those spectrums. Today, we're going to look at coupling Mm -hmm. marriage. How do you term it in 2024 terms when there's so many ways to look at a committed relationship? What's the term that you use? I I use that term, committed relationship and coupling. Not everybody is married and that's totally fine. It's just, are you 
interested in learning how to be in a conscious, committed relationship. And that word conscious, I think, is super important because most of us do a lot of things unconsciously. When we have that pull to another human being, it always feels in the very beginning that things are very natural and easy and that couplehood is just going to be a breeze. I think one of the pieces that in general is very challenging for most of us is that we feel like we get hooked and then there we are, not only with ourselves, but also with another human being who maybe we're not even sure is the right person for us because we meet in this very endorphin-filled place where everything is golden in the very beginning and then We start hearing from our partner about two to five years in about the complicated aspects of our nature. And then if we're brave enough, we start talking about that with our partner, too. And we're in a land that most of us don't know how to navigate. That's so well said. Most of our listeners have probably come across an article online stating that in that first two years, our neurochemicals increase, our serotonin, our dopamine. Mm -hmm. So we really do, in a sense get tricked into thinking, (laughs) oh, I understand it's hard for everyone else, but Mm -hmm. I found my soulmate. I feel so much happier. And then figuring out dishes or work schedules or finances (laughs) after co-parenting, co-parenting, co-financing. Yeah. (laughs) I always begin with the question of what is mental wellness? You're the first therapist I've had on the uh, podcast. I'm interested in what do you think these committed relationships do for our mental wellness? With regards to neurobiology, this really beautiful aspect of our field that has opened up in the last 10 years where neuroscience is coupling with this work that we have been doing for many years, what we are finding is that these neural pathways that were created in us when we were first learning how to be emotional in our families of origin, often what happens is that when we enter into couplehood, we are then faced with the patterns that we learned of how to be emotionally present or not emotionally present, those neural pathways that were formed in those early years can sometimes be very difficult for our partner to navigate with us. I think science is also talking a lot about that we are meant to be in community. We're meant to live in community with other people. And the sacred act of living with another human being for the rest of our lives is, in my mind, one of the hardest things that I've ever done in my lifetime, that and having a child, right? Both my husband and my daughter have been my biggest teachers. They have both also asked me to look at these neural pathways that were formed when I was being raised, the good and the complicated aspects of that, and then asking me to go on a different journey of creating new neural pathways so that I can be in a better more emotionally connected and spiritually connected relationship with each of them. That's a huge gift, but it also requires a lot of of rethinking how you want to be deeply connected with another person. To get back to that question of mental wellness, I think our ability to feel securely attached to another human being is why we are here. To feel really interconnected with community, which starts with our family, once we're clear with that core and we've done the work with that core, then we can expand our ability to be authentic in all of these other 
circles. And I know for me, as somebody who's going to be, I'm going to be 60 in a couple of months, I feel like that journey really that kind of deep understanding has only happened since I've been in my 50s. And it's been a lot of stops and starts helping couples navigate that when they're in their 20s and in their 30s. It takes a lot of grace and forgiveness because there's so many things that are being thrown at young people today. And many of them don't come from marriages that model for them what they want in their marriage. They were marriages that stayed together or divorced. One of the nice tie-ins that you said was consciousness. Mm -hmm. I think people fall in love in an unconscious way. And this is the greatest opportunity in their life to become more what I call self-aware. What am I feeling? What am I thinking? Not just internal self-awareness, what's going on inside me, Mm -hmm. but what committed relationships do more than any other form of relationship is they give us a chance to increase our external self-awareness, how we are impacting others. Mm -hmm. I remember very early in our marriage, I was making chicken and rice. Mm -hmm. I was pouring soup. I'm sure this sounds so (laughs) old-fashioned. On rice, my mother stirred it in and my husband said, no, don't do that. Just pour it on top. Uh And I was like, oh my God, that would be gross. (laughs) And that is what his mother did. It was in that moment that I created this line where I said, you're right, I'm right. Uh, What are we going to do about it? I often joke for 37 years, we have never been wrong. We have both been right because we start from that place. Okay, so that's a very interesting thing because um, to piggyback on that, something that I often say when I'm working with couples is that, do you want to be right or do you want to be relational? And I think you're saying it in a different way because our ability to be relational is not about, I know 100% that this is what happened and these are the facts. Sometimes I have couples who come in, can I show you the text? Can I show you the email of what it is that I have experienced living with this other human being? Instead of being a therapist, what they want is someone to be the judge and the jury and be on their side. That's also has a lot to do with family of origin for a lot of people. But it's also about wanting to feel connected to your family. It might taste better having it poured on or it might taste better having it stirred in. Who the heck knows? Another thing for me about being in relationship over these many years and working with couples, because that's the main thing that I do. I really think once you open your eyes to the idea that there are a lot of other ways to do things, that we have to learn how to be different when we are in our jobs. We have to learn how to be different when we have children. We have to learn how to be different when we're interacting with different neighbors. We certainly have to learn how to be different with our partners. I had a teacher, her name is Heidi Schleffer, and she uh, is brilliant. What Heidi Schleffer used to say to me, she says this to everyone who comes to see her, is one of the things that she thought was very important was to be reminded of the fact that when you are married, every year you're living with a different version of your partner. Things are constantly shifting and changing. I say that to my couples all the time. The person who I am today at the age of 59, thankfully, is not the same person that I was when I met my husband at the age of 19, because We have literally and figuratively rubbed up against each other, and we have reshaped each other to be different human beings. We did that over these years. Once you think everything is cool and everything has a good working mechanism, just be aware that life will happen and things will change again. 
I, I want to just summarize. Tip number one that you gave us is you took my little saying of I'm right, you're right, what are we going to do about it? And you said, really, the choice always is, do I want to be right or do I want to be relational? Mm -hmm. For listeners out there, that's what I want you to think about when it comes to any relationship you're in. What is your value? Because that's a value. Mm -hmm. Do you want to be right or do you want, want to be relational? And we get to pick our values. That's correct. So if you want to be right, good for you. Have at it. <laughs> your relationships might suffer. But if you want to be relational, uh -huh. then you really are invited to go on to a journey, which yeah. is your second point. That the person you marry, just like your child, we know that in childhood, we know that the baby doesn't look like the three-year-old, that doesn't look like the six-year-old, and we make beautiful shifts. Beautiful wow, that shifts. is really good linkage, MJ. I love that. Oh, good. That, that is beautiful. I have this fantasy of a couple models of marriage where people could get married and agree to get married through children, like people who raise children together, sure. and then we'll decide if we re-up. <laughs> or my other model is I want the experience of growing old with the same person. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that commitment means mm -hmm. I realize that not only will that person change, but I'll change. That's correct. And relationally, mm -hmm. we're going to do a dance mm -hmm. that helps us update. And that's hard for people. Those Absolutely. updates are hard. Those updates are hard. What, what tips do you have for people who are in the midst of those updates? That's a great question. I, I'm going to go back to the link that you were helping our listeners to understand that when we are basically growing up with another human being, because it doesn't matter if you meet somebody when you're in your teens or you meet somebody when you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s, emotionally, sexually, physically, intellectually, and also spiritually, you are growing up with that other individual. One of the things in that growing up process that I think is really important is the thing that you and I are doing right now. We encourage every single couple who comes into our office to gaze into the other person's eyes. And how that's connected to childhood is that if we are lucky when we are holding our baby and when we're being held as babies, possibly we were nurtured by our parents or other loved ones gazing into our eyes and holding us and rocking us. One of the tips that I definitely have is put your phones down, look into each other's eyes, sit across from each other, have a meal together, have a conversation where one person is talking and the other person is listening. And when that other person is listening, what you're doing possibly is even saying, okay, let me see if I got that and summarizing what the other person said. So the eye gazing, I think is a big tip. Another one is validation. One of the reasons why everything works well in that first six months to two years is that we are doing all kinds of validation. Oh my gosh, you look so great today. Oh, wow, that was a really great insight, or you are so funny, or whatever it might be. And then as we get into the sweatpant phase of being in a relationship where we're literally yes. smelling each other's nasty parts, and we're also getting very comfortable with each other, that can sometimes not be very sexually attractive, cannot be very emotionally attractive. We're literally letting ourselves get more comfortable and then not always doing the work of paying attention and validating the others. Those two things I think are super important and we are making sure 
that we are doing that on a regular basis. I think what's really important is it's hard to gaze into someone's eyes because of the phone. Correct. Not just your spouse, but I see that a lot with the clients I work with who have young children, Mm -hmm. that they're nursing with the TV on, they're nursing with the phone on. Yes, yes. And I think we have to help people be educated. In in the front part of our brain, Mm -hmm. we have these receptors that link us to each other. I worked in a junior high for 20 years and the girls would always say, emotions are contagious. I'm like, you are absolutely right Mm -hmm. that they are contagious because my Mm -hmm. mirror neurons in the front part of my forehead mirror your mirror neurons. Mm -hmm. And that's why if someone rolls their eyes at us, Mm -hmm. then we feel excluded or shamed or whatever. Yeah, But it works for couples. Yeah. Is that we gaze into each other's eyes like right. crazy at the right. beginning. 100%. We need to get back to that. Another um, suggestion that I have is something that I call the act of coming and going. What that is, is getting back to the basics. A lot of what gets lost is common courtesy. One of the things is, am I kissing my partner on the lips, not a grandmother kiss? Am I holding them close before they go to work? One of the things that we have also identified, Gottman has done a lot of research on this, as well as Sue Johnson, who's at the University of Ottawa in Canada. One of the things that is very important is any time that we can hold our partner close for 15 to 30 to 45 seconds. That's another thing that I often do in my office is that I'll have clients at the very end hug whether they're in conflict or not. They wouldn't be in my office if they didn't have some kind of joy in their life. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. They'd be on their way to ending their relationship in some way. That hug, when you leave each other and looking into each other's eyes and giving each other a non-grandparent kiss on the lips, super important. Then when you come back from the end of the day, not just saying hello to your cats and dogs or to your children, but seeking out your partner. These are the people who are the co-pilots in your house. So if you're not seeking them out and making sure that you're validating them in some kind of physical way and looking into their eyes, a lot is being lost in translation. Why do you think that this is the primary relationship for couples who make it through child rearing and decide they're going to be at each other's funerals? Why do you think it is that they almost become invisible with each other? Why do I think that they become invisible with each other? Where my brain goes is that I think most of us really fight on routinization. We're not routinized on how we eat. Otherwise, we'd all be slim. We're not routinized in how we exercise. Otherwise, we'd all be sleeping great. We're not routinized in how it is that we are deciding to go to bed at night. We're not routinized in a lot of things. Routinization, I think, is something that most of us fight. And there is an easy recipe to follow. And it is some of these just very simplistic things that when we follow them, then we become less invisible. I think in part that might be what it is, just a push back from, I've already done the thing. I bought a house with you. I'm raising a family with you. I have my career. You have your career, if that's how the household is set up. So do we really have to be doing all of these other things too? There's such an emphasis on children now. Yeah. And there's such an emphasis on career. Correct. And there's much less of an emphasis on each other. There's only 24 hours in a day. Actually, I talk about this with couples too, because there's a lot of things that I could say were very complicated about how I was raised. But my parents went out every Friday and Saturday night. My mom got dressed up and they would go to the theater or they would go and play euchre with their friends, or they would go bowling. 
but they went out and that's what they did every single Friday and Saturday night. You could say things about that, that maybe that's not always great from the vantage point of spending time with your children. But I think what we need is not necessarily a 1970s approach to couplehood. Actually, it was people in our generation that started this trend around having it be very child-centered focused. It's really important for us to learn how to have a balance in between. We're ensuring that we are, in fact, going out. We don't have to spend a lot of money. We can go for a walk. We can have a beach picnic. It's not about always going out for dinner, which I think is something that a lot of people think you have to do. Expand it. Right. You know, we have beautiful park systems. We're going to have a really good conversation. I have a number of couples, they call it holy hour. Uh And it isn't because they're super religious. It is that they had to give it a name that reflected its importance because their connection had become non-existent. They had become really good business partners. Right. They were both doing good at their jobs. Right. They were raising their kids. They were going to all the activities. They just assumed that they could reconnect in their 50s when their kids were all raised. Mm-hmm. That sometimes happens. It sometimes happens, but a lot of times we're just confused. We've done all this child rearing and we wake up and we're like, whoa, who is this person that I now need to be like more engaged in. We're thinking about retirement and now I've got to travel with this person and I don't know who this individual is. That can be really scary. What I call that is the sacred space. I talk about that a lot in my work is the sacred space that we have to be really conscious about and how we do that is through compassion and curiosity as well as honesty and vulnerability. I think that honesty and vulnerability is challenging for a lot of us. How do we be, how do we continue to be vulnerable with another person who might be judgmental or critical of us? Another tip is think about sacred space. Yeah. Part of what I hear you saying is it has to be really intentional. It doesn't feel natural for people to gaze at their spouse at 7.30 in the morning. All people are trying to do is get out of the door. I think there's so many ripple effects for children Mm -hmm. when parents stop, poke, kiss, and say, have a good day. I really learned that if you're going to be 30 seconds late for school, yeah, yeah, might as well be a minute and 30 seconds. A hundred percent. And it all flows fine. It says something to children who know that the world orbits around them, that there is at least this little planet off to the side that Mm -hmm. every so often they have to wait on, Mm -hmm. contend with. As their parents are intentionally connected. And sometimes some of these tips sound like maybe they're not grounded in reality. But I do think a lot of your listeners out there might be people who are very committed to a physically active life of some kind, where they're going to be swimming, they're going to be biking, they're going to be walking every single day. By recognizing that we have to exercise the things that we are doing within trying to be consciously connected with another human being. We have to figure out what is going to work best for our family and what are we doing with intention. So it's really intention. I encourage people Mm -hmm. for these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. If you want to integrate having a hug and a kiss before you leave to put post-it notes up. Right. I am the biggest believer in post-it notes because we're not going to insert a new habit Mm -hmm. if we don't have a reminder Mm -hmm. to insert a new habit. When you're talking about post-it notes where that makes my brain go with regards to what it is that a lot of us as women need when it comes to sexual functioning. And that is that we need words. When I am working with couples and trying to help men understand what foreplay is, it's not touching any kind of physical parts. It's, have you helped me clean the house? Did you help me put the kids to bed? 
did we have a nice meal where there wasn't um, any kind of criticism or judgment? I'm not trying to say that men are always like that. I'm saying that the ability to recognize that foreplay is related to the kind words that we are saying to each other, that emotional connection, then helps women's brains turn on sexually and helps women relax into a possible state where maybe some kind of physical intimacy can occur at night. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have this exercise that I've done with most couples I've worked with where they put on a three by five card every home activity and chore they do along Mm -hmm. with their jobs. Mm -hmm. If they're taking care of an elderly parent, Mm -hmm. each individual has their own color. Okay. And they put them on the floor Mm -hmm. in my office. Mm -hmm. And after being overwhelmed by how much they're doing, what it does is visually show the distribution of chores. Oh, that's nice. And then I have them pick up the chores they love doing. Mm Mm-hmm. Then they look at the rest and the distribution is there and they talk about we only mow the lawn once a week, but I do the wash five times a week Mm -hmm, or whatever. mm -hmm. I created this for my husband and I 30 years ago and I was doing the wash and he was doing the grocery shopping and he didn't pick up grocery shopping and I didn't pick up wash because I hated doing wash. He's, oh my God, I'd love to do the wash. He is like a a savant when it comes to doing wash and folding. It's unbelievable. He finds it relaxing. Mm -hmm. And I like to go grocery shopping. Uh It took away this tension, but I usually encourage couples to do this every year Mm -hmm. because it matches what we talked about. As we get older, we change. We were making communion bread for our church and we Mm -hmm. had done it for eight years. And Mm -hmm. it was fun when the kids were little and it was impossible once they reached junior high. Right, of course. And then it allowed us to say, okay, we've done that. We need to update how we come and go, which is so important Mm -hmm. because we're so happy to pet the dog and we say hi as we walk by Mm -hmm. our spouse. Mm -hmm. But I think we want to update how we live together, how we manage. I I think that's very true. Also, making sure that the long-term financial burden is not just on one person. An older school model is that the men take care of that. With most of us women who are now working, that is a shared goal. Like how much money do we need to have at the end, how are we doing that together to ensure that the burden is not on one person? Just like how are we doing it together so that the burdens of the everyday life are not just on one person, which often has traditionally fallen on women. That shared mentality of responsibility, this is how we do life, we do life together, that can feel very nurturing to both people. Yes. Mm -hmm. One of the things that people say to me, how do I know when we do the cards? I'm like, when you're complaining to your friends that Mm -hmm. you're doing too much. This is a gender statement, but Mm -hmm. it's my actual clinical experience I often have couples write what their vision of their marriage is, Mm -hmm. and the woman will write two pages, Mm -hmm. and the men will write a paragraph. Then I have them write their vision of their work life, and men will three or four pages, and women will write a paragraph. That could be different with younger ages, so if it doesn't fit you, punt it. But the point is that we're enculturated to think about one part of our life more than the other. That is 100% true. And that one of the tips I have for couples is to try to let yourself think about whichever part you put less energy mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. and and how important that is. Mm-hmm. With younger couples, often one of them has this clear idea for the holidays mm-hmm. and the other follows. Mm-hmm. But I really try to stop them and say, what do you want as a we? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. we have a lot of I. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I talk about a lot is our capital I is our ego, but it's not 
ideal. We need an ego, but it has its function. But I like people to have the the lowercase I, which is Mm -hmm. italicized, Mm -hmm. which is connecting and flexible. Mm -hmm. So you're there, Mm -hmm. but with your partner, you're really always trying to think about, is this connecting? Is this connecting? Also, I think that long-term committed partnership is also related to the gift that we get being in a relationship with another human being is that we get to be a student in their classroom. One of the things that I often am talking about is that we're getting PhDs in each other's realities. So you're getting a PhD in their emotional, spiritual, intellectual, and physical reality. The question you always need to be asking yourself is, are you a good student in those realities? And are you a good teacher of your own realities? One of the things that I really think is that we are gifted with the life partner that we have, and that person gets to help us grow and change. If we want that, if we're going to lean into the gifts that our partner is giving us that we can grow and change into. I I agree with that, but what I'd be really interested in you talking about is when somebody is in a relationship with a person who doesn't want to grow and change, Mm -hmm. because it seems to me that the kind of assumption both of us are making in relationships is both people lean into growth and change. Mm -hmm. And I've seen a lot where it's not both. Right. The kind of work that we do in Imago is always looking at the family system. What Imago looks at a lot is where did all of these emotional frameworks happen when we were kids? Not just the family system that we were raised in, but the playgrounds that we were raised in, the schools that we were raised in, the churches that we were raised in. When somebody is stuck in that way, it normally is not about the relationship. It is about the emotional framework that individual has and then helping them to connect and heal in front of the other person with regards to possibly some of the trauma as well as some of the ways in which they're stuck. That's a large part of the work. Understanding our unconscious childhood issues as well as the emotional framework that all of us were raised in in our communities and in our families is imperative, I think, in helping couples really understand that it's not about the person always that they're in relationship with, but it is about these unworked issues. Sometimes couples therapy can be a lot about individual therapy, but your partner is helping you do that work. When I refer people to couples, nobody wants to go. Right, People 100%. prefer individual therapy right, because right. we love to be listened to, but we also then are just telling our perspective. That's right. One of the tenants of my wellness program is what I call psychological intelligence. Mm -hmm. My story, your story, our story. It becomes really fascinating to Mm me that when I can discipline myself Mm -hmm. to want to hear my husband's side of the story. I'm a very strong individual. He's a very strong individual. We both have been right right for 37 years. So we do have to say, oh, what's your perspective on that? And want to do that and discipline ourselves to do that. That's 100%. And when you're not doing that, you're missing the gift and the opportunity that the other person is there to teach you something that you really need to possibly listen to. The reason why I do couples work and I tell people this often, is because there's no bullshit in the room. I really love that. It's just completely transparent that both people, once you create the safety, both people are really going to help each other understand what it has been like living with them. My job is to help couples do that in a kind way, not in a nasty way. There's a pinch. 
that we can't live with another person, mm-hmm. no matter how open we are to growth, because they're holding a mirror up to us. Mm-hmm. We find out things about ourselves, right. some that are wonderful, mm-hmm. others that aren't so great. Yeah, but then we get an opportunity to grow and change. That's right. right. Uh, yeah, because like sometimes couples will come in and they'll be like, I don't want to change you. If that's the case, I'm not the therapist for you because everybody in this room grows and change. While I'm observing you and helping you to grow and change, I'm growing and changing too. That's a byproduct, I think, of the work that we get to do with other people. We are observing their work and helping them in their own work, of course. We're growing and changing as well by helping other people grow and change. When we see them being so courageous to do that kind of work that you said that sometimes... People will come in and they'll be a little stuck around that. It's part of the fun for me is to help people recognize where they might be a little stuck and help them to go a little deeper. Part of that stuckness is rooted in being defensive. Correct. Which is really rooted in, I want to be right more than relational. That is right. It's really easy to say to someone, don't be defensive. I'm interested in how do you help people move out of that defensive stance? Mm -hmm. The way in which you help people move out of that defensive stance is in part helping them to tap into their own vulnerability. When they can recognize that this isn't about what is happening within the context of the relationship right in front of them, but that possibly the stance that they're taking is impacting their relationship with their children, impacting their relationship with other people in their extended families, impacting their relationship with people at work, and just helping them very gently understand that they can be more than that defensiveness. They can be present in helping them to become undefended is part of the work that we do, going back to what we were talking about earlier, what are the neural pathways that were shaped for them around emotional connection? That really has a lot to do with attachment. Did they have ambiguous attachment when they were growing up? Did they have secure attachment, insecure attachment, anxious attachment? What was happening? A lot of times you're not making it about the people in couplehood, but all of the people who are shaping their internal world. Then people can become less defended and possibly relax into, oh, maybe I can be different in this reality. And maybe this person sitting across from me can learn how to deal with my defensiveness and my critical ways or my judgmental ways or whatever and help me soften so that I can open up my heart space. Because that's all the work that we do, isn't it? Right. Opening up, up the heart space of others. Which, again, I think it sounds so delightful. I think it's really hard for people. It is very hard. I think that it's really hard today in the most unique way Mm -hmm. because our heart space easily gets opened up on the phone. That's true. It's so easy. You see those puppies, Taylor Swift, and you're like, oh, ah. And I always try to encourage people to make sure that they are practicing this with people because the phone isn't a vulnerable place. What I think you're saying is the human capacity to have our heart space open in that day has already been filled. Well, then why would we want to look towards our partner to get it filled? Because we've gotten it filled through social media or through other things. Is that what you're I think about like when our heart space gets filled through devices, we feel pretty good. Mm-hmm. It's just not sustenance 
No different than if you're just eating ice cream and Reese's all day long. Right. It feels right. great. Mm-hmm. It's just that your body needs more. Mm-hmm. I think our whole body, our mind, our spirit needs real relationship. Mm-hmm. That's why we have such a epidemic of loneliness. Mm-hmm. To me, defensiveness is one of the first places that I work with people just so they, they know what their body does. Sure. If I say to people, for this week, look at what does your body do when you get defensive? Mm-hmm. People, they're like, oh my gosh, I clench up. I, I can feel my like mm-hmm. hands wanting to push away. I feel my heart close. A lot of what um, I'm doing in couples work is when you want to pull away from your partner, that is actually the time to lean in. It's very counterintuitive yeah. because we think, oh, I just want to run away. There's too much tension here, or I can feel what this person wants from me is something I don't want to give. But again, what we're like looking for is the synchronistic flow of energy where there's a lot of giving and taking. Sometimes being in a consciously connected relationship is doing the very thing that you don't want to do. How I often talk about that is when you are raising children, or even if you don't have children and you're raising dogs, let's just talk about dogs, for instance, you don't always want to go on that walk. With children, you don't always want to go to the next soccer game or whatever it is that your child might be like really invested in. But you do them anyway, because you want to be present. We have to be asking ourselves when we're in a relationship, what am I doing to really be present to the reality of my partner? I'll give a personal example. My husband is an avid basketball fan, and he has um, season tickets to Notre Dame. I like it. It's not my favorite thing. I'll go and I'll sit in the seat beside him and, you know, join him after work and participate in something that I really have no interest in, but it's something that's really important to him, and he always loves it when I'm there. He has a lot of other people he can share in that reality. It's not like I have to do that. But I'm like leaning into something that isn't my first choice, but it is something that he really loves. To pick up on something you said earlier, my parents, like yours, had these community commitments that carried them. Many weekends, they had something that involved other couples. We have to structure these things or we'll be at home doing something separate. We'll be siloed. What are we doing with intention? One of the things that I do is I have these calendars that I give couples. What are you doing to pre-plan the different kind of activities that you want to be doing with your partner? I think sometimes what happens is we have things centered on other things other than what's best for our household. When you can look at things ahead over the course of a year or even four months ahead, then what you can do is you can start planning a life that's intentional just for you. Right. As we begin to wrap up, I'd like you just to do a pitch for your business. I think you have some really interesting work going on in South Bend, Indiana. (laughs) Thank you. Being a couples as well as a sex therapist is definitely my passion. Predominantly doing couples work. And about eight years ago, my husband and I established a workshop. What we're doing is we're bringing couples together to have the harder conversations around sexuality, sensuality, and erotica. This happens on a Friday night through a Sunday. We are providing really private places, spaces for couples to have intentional conversations through worksheets that have been devised by Esther Perel and a colleague of mine from Amago, Pat Love. We use these workshops to help 
couples who are having a really difficult time having sex and other couples who just don't even know how to have conversations with regards to the large spectrum of sexuality, which incorporates sensuality, erotica, and sexuality. My husband, who is a philosophy professor, gives three really good talks from a philosophical perspective, but also based on his experience of what it's been like for him being in a connected relationship with a woman for 40 years and helping people to understand that the safety that happens with regards to sexuality is connected with how people feel safe emotionally. So both things need to be happening at the same time. There's a lot more details on my website with regards to that. A lot of people come to see me for extended sessions. My sessions are 90 minutes in length but oftentimes people are seeing me for two to three to six hours dealing with these particular sensitive topics. Oh, great. And yeah. what's your website? It's uh, www.elliewinia.com. I could definitely do this for hours, but because I have to edit this, I have to stop. Thank you so much. It was fun being with you. Thanks. And here are my inner challenge insights. Insight number one. Ellie frequently emphasizes the significance of neuropathways in our lives. And you might be wondering how they relate to our relationships. Picture it like your daily commute. You habitually take the same route to work until one day there's a road closure, forcing you onto a new path. Initially met with some grumpiness, you soon discover that the alternative route is scenic and enjoyable. When the detour ends, you decide to stick with this beautiful drive to work. In essence, you've rewired your neural pathway to work. This analogy extends to relationships. When we enter committed partnerships, we bring along relationship skills developed in childhood. Some effective, others not so much. However, it often goes unnoticed until our partner declares, I am not going down this road with you. At this point, it's not uncommon to react with defensiveness, clinging to the familiar route that clearly needs fixing. Why? Because our neural pathways are accustomed to the well-trodden path and resist change. Yet, if we grasp that our initial resistance to change is a natural response, though an unhealthy one, we open ourselves to new, more beautiful journeys. Embracing change in relationships may initially seem challenging, akin to navigating an unfamiliar road, but the rewards are often far more enriching. Insight number two. In episode 40, I, I discussed self-awareness, noting that only 20% of Americans are considered self-aware. Many individuals I work with possess internal self-awareness, but lack external self-awareness, which involves understanding how our behavior affects others. I seldom see people give each other feedback where the other person openly and curiously considers it. Typically, when someone offers feedback like, your temper's exhausting, or your spending's out of control, the common response is defensive, such as you're too sensitive, or everything I buy is for the family. To grow, we must commit to hearing perspectives from those close to us, even though it can be challenging. No pain, no gain. Insight number three. Do you want to be right or relational? One more time. Do you want to be right or relational? Insight number four. I found Ellie's perspective on how we fight routinization fascinating. I kind of think it's true. Why not schedule in some time for hugs and kisses before and after work? Insight Number five, foreplay for women is not touching any body parts. Or as a book from the 1970s said, sex begins in the kitchen. Insight number six, navigating relationships can be challenging, 
particularly when someone feels emotionally stuck. Ellie provides valuable insight by suggesting that this often traces back to childhood, a concept that has left countless individuals perplexed over the years. It's a surreal encounter to be a fully matured adult with a portion of oneself seemingly frozen in childhood. What's crucial for each of us to realize is that the most difficult phase has passed and the mature adult now has the opportunity to understand, nurture, and assist the stagnant aspect in healing, feeling secure, and ceasing to hinder the pursuit of the adult's desires. None of us desires to be controlled by the emotional state of an eight-year-old. Insight number seven. Hey, if you happen to hear that Taylor and Travis can't shake it off, please pass on Ellie's contact information, elliewinia.com. It'll be in the show notes. Thanks for listening. And I hope you and your partner can have a date night, a holy hour, a sacred space, so you can nurture your special relationship.